and thanks very much for listening to the premier podcast of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide, known to insiders as IPG. This podcast is approved for 40 minutes of general self-study MCLE credit. We're going to be covering a trio of cases from the California Supreme Court today on IPG. The first case is called People vs. Banks, and it deals with the most serious kind of case a prosecutor can face, a special circumstance murder case. It addresses the standard for determining when death, or even life without possibility of parole, as you're about to find out, can be imposed on a defendant who participates in a felony murder, but who does not do the actual killing and does not have the intent to kill. To get these IPG podcasts off on the right foot, I've asked one of the easiest persons I found to listen to to come on our show to discuss the case of Banks. Santa Clara County Assistant District Attorney, Terry Harmon. Terry, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Terry, we've already given our listeners an idea of what this discussion is all about. But they haven't heard yet about what are the facts that gave rise to the decision in Banks. Perhaps you could start us off by letting us know about those facts. Sure. In Banks, the defendant Matthews was an accomplice to the armed robbery of a medical marijuana dispensary by his co-defendants, Banks, Gardner, and Daniels. Defendant Matthews was the getaway driver, and he drove his co-defendants to the location of the dispensary, and he waited a few blocks away while the robbery took place. The co-defendants, two of whom were armed with guns, managed to enter the dispensary, and the co-defendants then start tying up the employees of the dispensary, and they start searching the premises. At some point while this was occurring, the security guard, who was also armed, fired his weapon. And the co-defendants attempt to flee out the front door. They are hindered from escaping by the security guard, and a gun battle ensued in which co-defendant Banks shot and killed the security guard. The co-defendants, who were in contact by cell phone with Defendant Matthews, notified Defendant Matthews, and he drove and picked them up. It's important to note that Defendant Matthews and two of the co-defendants were members of the same gang that engaged in various criminal activities, including shootings and murders, but the actual killer was not a member of the same gang. Were any of the co-defendants individuals who had either killed or assaulted someone in the past? And was there any evidence that our guy Matthews knew about any of such incidents? There was no evidence that Defendant Matthews knew any of the three had killed before. Okay, so what did this guy uh, Matthews end up getting convicted of? So Defendant Matthews was convicted of, among other crimes, first-degree murder... And the jury found true the special circumstance that the murder was committed during an attempted robbery or burglary. The prosecution did not seek the death penalty, but because of the special circumstance finding, Defendant Matthews was sentenced to life without parole or LWOP. Now, the Court of Appeal upheld the conviction, but it was taken up for review by the California Supreme Court. What was the defendant claiming in his petition for review. Defendant Matthews claimed that being the getaway driver for the underlying robbery was insufficient to 
support the special circumstances allegation. And why did the California Supreme Court take it up for review? The California Supreme Court granted review to address the question of under what circumstances an accomplice who lacks the intent to kill may qualify as a major participant so as to be statutorily eligible for the death penalty. Now, Terry, when is a person uh, eligible for either death or life without possibility of parole in general when they are convicted of a murder? Well, there have to be special circumstances. So Penal Code Section 190.2, subsection A, provides a list of special circumstances that will make the defendant either face the death penalty or LWOP if one or more of the special circumstances is found true. For example, a first-degree murder involving a special circumstance of rape, lying in wait, a first-degree murder committed for financial gain, those are circumstances that will make you eligible for the death penalty. There are also crimes where the type of targeted victim will constitute a special circumstance, such as the intentional killing of a peace officer. Now, if one of these special circumstances is listed in 190.2 and it's found by the jury to, to exist, must the defendant be given death? No. The, de the defendant becomes death eligible. If the DA pursues the death penalty, the jury must consider aggravating factors and weigh them against any mitigating factors to determine whether death or LWOP is the appropriate punishment. Now, what was the special circumstance specifically applied to Defendant Matthews in the Banks case? That the murder was committed during an attempted robbery or burglary. When that special circumstance is, is, is applied, does it make a difference whether the person uh, to whom it's applied was the actual killer or just an aider and a better or a co-conspirator? It does. An aider and a better who was not the actual killer can still be convicted of a special circumstance murder as long as the person acted with reckless indifference to human life and was a major participant. Does that aider and a better or a co-conspirator who falls in that into that category have to have a, an intent to kill? No, but it's interesting to note that section 190.2c allows aiders and abettors who act with the intent to kill to become death or LWOP eligible whether or not their conduct makes them major participants in the crime. Although the prosecution did not argue that defendant Matthews was eligible based on this theory. Was the question in the Banks court whether that standard was met in this particular case, the standard being whether or not the defendant Matthews acted with reckless indifference to human life and as a major participant. Yes. Banks was all about what it means to be a major participant, which is the term used by the U.S. Supreme Court in Tyson v. Arizona. Now, does Section 190.2, which is the statute which also uses that same language, and which was based on Tyson, uh, define what qualifies as major participation. It does not, and that's likely why our courts needed to give some clarification. Now, when the California Supreme Court was doing its analysis as to how to define a major participant, did they focus solely on the case of Tyson versus Arizona? 
No. The Supreme Court also looked at Edmund v. Florida, a U.S. Supreme Court case that figured prominently in the Tyson decision. According to the California Supreme Court in Banks, in applying the analysis that was used in Tyson and Edmund, did the court find that death may be imposed not only on the actual killer, but on those who attempt or intend to kill? Yes. Although the prosecution didn't argue that defendant Matthews had an intent to kill in this case. And using that analysis, what did the California Supreme Court say about when death or LWOP can be imposed on someone who does not kill and does not attempt or intend to kill? You are eligible for the death penalty if there is major participation combined with reckless indifference to human life. So mere participation by itself in a felony murder, if you're an aider and a better, does not permit the imposition of the death penalty. Terry, did the Banks Court discuss how you go about determining whether this required conduct and mental state is present? You look at the facts and circumstances of your case and use the facts and circumstances of the Tyson and, and Edmund cases as guidelines to help determine whether or not the defendant is a major participant who had the requisite mental state. So in the United States Supreme Court, when they were addressing the Edmund case, what did they find was insufficient evidence of participation in Edmund? So in Edmund, that defendant went to purchase or sell a calf to the victim. And when he went to sell the calf to the victim, he saw that the victim carried large sums of cash on his person. So he leaves, he hooks up with a couple of accomplices, and then he drives a couple of weeks later with the accomplices back to the farm. And he drops off the accomplices. He knows the accomplices are armed. But he waits. He's basically the getaway driver. The accomplices go up there uh, ostensibly to rob the victim. When the victim's wife appears with a gun, those accomplices shoot and kill both the victim and his wife. That defendant drives away and helps dispose of the murder weapons. For that particular court, in finding that that was insufficient evidence for death eligibility, it was clear that the fact that the motive was robbery and the fact that Edmund was not on scene. Those were huge factors for the court, that they saw that as, you were a getaway driver for a robbery. We're not going to find you death eligible. All right, so that's what the U.S. Supreme Court found when it came to the Edmund case. Yes. What did the U.S. Supreme Court find was sufficient evidence to make someone death eligible in the Tyson case? Okay. Tyson involved much different facts much more horrendous, gruesome facts, basically fruit of the uh, poisonous family tree facts. So Tyson involved three brothers, Raymond, Ricky, and Donald. 
who go to break their dad, Gary, out of prison. And so they break their dad and their dad's cellmate out of prison. And they are armed. And when they break their dad out of prison, they hold guards and visitors at gunpoint. So now they have a getaway car. And the car gets a flat tire. And so now we've got the three brothers, the dad, the cellmate, in a car with a flat tire, and they pull over, and one of the brothers, Raymond, flags down another car while the rest of uh, the bad guys are hiding. And a family of four stops. And when that family of four stops, the rest of the bad guys come out, and they take that car with that family of four, and they capture that family, they drive that family and that car into the desert, and uh, other bad guys from that family take the other car with the, um, the flat tire, the original car, and they transfer their possessions into the car, into the family, the good people's car, the victim's car, and then the dad and the cellmate kill all four family members. When they are later apprehended at a roadblock, one of the brothers is killed and the dad ends up escaping into the desert, dying of exposure. And the high court finds that those other two brothers uh, are basically death qualified. They are major participants. And they, and you can see there that their activities are much, much different than the defendant in the Edmund case. Okay, so those guys in Tyson, uh, major participants, and they acted with reckless indifference to human life. Correct. Now, based on the California Supreme Court's review of Edmund and Tyson, did they come up with sort of a constitutional minimum conduct? that allows for the imposition of the death penalty when you have an aider and a better in a felony murder a killing where the aider and a better doesn't intend, uh, doesn't intend to kill and doesn't attempt to kill? Well, there's no hard and fast rule. What we know is that somewhere in between the level of participation and mental state of the defendant in Edmund and the level of participation and mental state of the defendant in Tyson is, is our minimum level of culpability uh, for death eligibility. I think that Tyson is definitely on the more egregious end of the spectrum, and we can feel comfortable that the Tyson brothers have not set the minimum level of cult culpability for death eligibility. So what sort of factors did the Banks Court identify as bearing on whether or not a defendant's participation in criminal activities known to carry a, a grave risk of death are sufficiently significant to establish that the person was a major participant? The Banks Court identified several factors that distinguished the defendants in Tyson from the defendant in Edmund and held that all of them may be weighed in determining the ultimate question whether the defendant's participation was sufficiently significant to be considered major. 
And now keep in mind, these factors are not exclusive, but some of the factors that they named or listed including included what was the role in planning? What was the role in weapons? Did this person supply them? Did he use them? What's the past experience with participants? What's the knowledge of the other participants as far as criminal history? What's the intent? Were they present at the scene? Did they facilitate? Could they have prevented the actual murder? What actions or inactions played or could have played a particular role in the death? What did they do after lethal force was used? Did the Banks Court say whether any one factor was more dispositive than any other factor? It appears clear that cases where lethal force is not part of the agreed-upon plan and absence from the scene may significantly diminish culpability for death since absent participants have no opportunity to dissuade the actual killer. Of course, I, I do say it's curious, Jeff, as, as to why this seemed an important point for the court, but, but they did make it in a footnote. Okay. <laughs> now, did the Banks Court indicate whether the jury should be actually informed of these factors. I know that currently there's no Calcrim or Calgic instruction that exists on this issue, doesn't identify these factors, but did the Banks Court indicate that actually the jury should be told about these potential factors in deciding whether or not uh, an individual in the circumstance like the defendant in, in the Banks case should or should not get the death penalty? Again, that it's not an exhaustion list. I don't think that they meant it to be an exhaustive list of factors, but it was clearly significant to them that this is among the factors that must be considered by the jury. They make at least two references to what a jury should consider or be presented with, and I think that the court, it's clear the court's anticipating that this information is going to become part of the record and part of what the jury's going to weigh and balance. So we, should, we shouldn't be surprised then if uh, the Calcrim committee or defense attorney is, is asking for an instruction uh, identifying these factors, although if that occurs, uh, it's probably a good idea to make sure that the jury is also informed that it isn't an exclusive list. Right. Now, do the standards for imposing death on a non-killer participant who's charged with a felony murder special circumstance have to be used in assessing whether a defendant is eligible simply for life without possibility of parole. I mean, do they apply when the, 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 the DA is not seeking death but just LWAP? Yes. So it's not required by the Constitution, but it is statutorily required. The Tyson-Edmund standard is applicable to an allegation of a felony murder special circumstance, regardless of whether the people seek and exact the death penalty or a sentence of LWAP. In banks, the people did not seek the death penalty. So under 190.2 then, it doesn't even make a difference whether we're just seeking LWAP. That can't be imposed unless the jury makes a determination that the individual was a major participant and acted with reckless indifference to life. Correct. We have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. Now, using that standard, did the court find that Defendant Matthews was eligible for LWAP as a major participant? They found he was not. The court found insufficient evidence that Defendant Matthews was a major participant 
they found his role much akin to the defendant in Edmund. He was not on scene. Uh, they didn't find uh, evidence of his role in planning the robbery or evidence that he had procured weapons. Although Defendant Matthews and uh, two of his co-defendants were gang members, the killer was not in Matthews's gang. Okay, so they, they didn't find that there was sufficient evidence there to show that he was a major participant. Did they even find that there was uh, sufficient evidence that he was recklessly indifferent to human life? In other words, did they find that based on the evidence he was subjectively aware that his participation in the felony involved a grave risk of death. They did not. They found the Tyson-Edmund standard was not met in regards to the requisite mental state. And they found that simple participation uh, in an armed robbery, it, just, it was not sufficient to show a subjective awareness since death does not so frequently occur during such crimes that that the death penalty should be considered as a justifiable deterrent to the felony itself. There was no evidence he intended to kill or knowingly conspired with accomplices known to have killed before. Now, Terry, though, it, aren't there cases out there that hold that the knowledge that one's accomplice is armed, that by itself can establish reckless indifference to human life under Section 192D? There were... They've been disapproved. By the California Supreme Court in <laughs> Yes, okay. yes. Now, in the case of Tyson, which is the U.S. Supreme Court case, mm -hmm. didn't they kind of indicate that there are certain felonies which by themselves could provide a basis for an inference that any person who participated in those crimes was uh, reflected a reckless indifference to human life? It didn't make a difference who or what their role was as so long as they participated in it. And hasn't the California Supreme Court itself said that any crime that's listed in Penal Code Section 189, which describes the various crimes making someone eligible for a first-degree murder con uh, conviction based on committing a, a felony murder, and some of those crimes are like robbery and burglary, didn't uh, the California Supreme Court say those crimes in the list are inherently dangerous? And if you take those two cases together, doesn't that sort of indicate that, hey, there's crimes listed that if you participate in it, you're automatically uh, reflecting a reckless indifference to human life? I see what you're saying. Although the, the Banks Court views it a different way, meaning that although the crimes listed in Section 189 may be inherently dangerous, this does not mean an individual participant in the crime has acted with a reckless indifference to human life. Now, what about the fact there was evidence that Defendant Matthews and two of the other participants were a part of the same criminal street gang? Now, there was evidence, right, that indicated that this criminal street gang, or at least the umbrella criminal street gang that these guys were part of, engaged in murder, shootings, robbery, and uh, attempted murder. Wouldn't coupled with everything else, the fact that they were members of the gang helped show reckless indifference on the part of Defendant Matthews. Well, the Banks Court found that there was no evidence indicating that Defendant Matthews or the other two participants had ever participated in shootings, murder, or attempted murder, 
Although the umbrella gang may have engaged in such behavior, the subgroup or clique that Matthews and the other participants belonged to had not, and therefore there was insufficient evidence of reckless indifference. Okay, so Terry, any final thoughts for prosecutors deciding whether to charge an aider and a better? Who, and we've got to make sure this is clear, this, this case only applies to aiders and abettors who do not have the intent to kill, did not kill, and did not uh, attempt to kill someone. But any final thoughts for prosecutors deciding whether to charge an aider and abettor with the felony murder special circumstance? Yes, I think that Banks reminds us to ask additional questions when we are ferreting out culpability. For the most part, we are comfortable with knowing what it means to be the getaway driver, but the Banks decision highlights that there are different layers of culpability depending on the evidence of one's involvement and knowledge a defendant had about his or her co-defendant's criminal history and other details associated with planning the crime. Well, that sounds like a good takeaway, Terry. So thanks for that observation, and thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. The next two cases we're going to discuss involve the questions, respectively, of whether a defendant whose commitment as a mentally disordered offender is subject to being extended must personally waive his right to jury trial, and whether a defendant whose commitment, after having been found not guilty by reason of insanity, is subject to being extended must personally waive his right to a jury trial. To discuss both of those cases, I've asked the man who adroitly prosecutes pretty much all the mental health-related proceedings handled by the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office. That man is Deputy District Attorney Pinaki Chakravorty, and he has been kind enough to join me and lend a little bit of his expertise to our first podcast. Pinaki, thanks very much. Thank you, Jeff, for having me here. Pinocchi, the first case is People versus Blackburn. Could you set the table for our discussion by laying out the facts we need to know to discuss the issue in the case? Sure. Mr. Blackburn was convicted of two felonies around 2003, a first-degree burg and a false imprisonment. Um, when he was on parole, he was designated a mentally disordered offender under the mentally disordered offender statute as a condition of parole. When his parole uh, terminated, that was converted to a civil commitment, uh, again, under the Mentally Disordered Offender Statute. The commitment was extended a few times, and then in 2011, the district attorney filed their third petition to, again, extend his commitment as a mentally disordered offender, commitment in a hospital so that he could be treated as a mentally disordered offender. Uh, the defense indicated that they wanted a trial on the extension of the commitment, but the defense attorney waived jury without getting a personal waiver of jury from Mr. Blackburn himself on the record. Uh, so there was a bench trial, the petition was sustained, and the commitment was extended for another year. Was the defendant in this case advised by the court that he had a right to a jury trial? He was not, no. Now this case ends up before the California Supreme Court. Pinocchi, what was the issue before the court? That issue was that issue that you just brought up right at the end of uh, the last question which is whether the defendant needs to be personally advised by the court of the right to a jury trial and whether the defendant needs to personally waive uh, his right to a jury trial on the record instead of having his attorney do it for him. That was the issue. All right. Before we start heading into a discussion of the specific legal issue before the court, 
For those people in the audience who are unfamiliar with mentally disordered offender prosecutions, could you give us a brief overview of how the statute governing mentally disordered offenders, or MDOs in common parlance, uh, works? Sure. Um, The MDO statute deals with certain offenses, which are enumerated in the statute itself, Um, and it says that if these offenses are caused or aggravated by a severe mental disorder, and if as a result the perpetrator uh, still constitutes a threat of harm to others, um, then that person can be committed um, as a mentally disordered offender, again, for the purpose of treating him, uh, hopefully to um, getting him better so that he's less of a threat to the community um, than he is currently. That's the purpose of the statute. The commitment can occur at three different points. Uh, it can be as a condition of parole when the offender is on parole. It can be part of an extension of parole, or it can be after parole has terminated, it can be converted to a civil commitment, and that's what happened with Mr. Blackburn. Now, the DA has to petition to extend the commitment each time, and after parole has ended, uh, these are one-year extensions, so the DA has to petition one year at a time. Does the statute say anything about whether or not the MDO has a right to a jury trial and whether that right can be waived when it comes to these extension hearings? Yes, the statute is very explicit on that. Under uh, Penal Code 2972, subsection A, the statute requires the court to advise the MDO of his or her right to a jury trial. It says the court shall advise of the right to a jury trial, and that trial shall be by jury unless waived by the MDO and the district attorney. Now, MDOs, they're often people who don't necessarily have the firmest grasp on reality. Right. So does there have to be a personal waiver by the defendant, or can the defense attorney, who's probably somewhat familiar with the mental condition of the defendant, waive it on behalf of the defendant? Right, and that used to happen all the time, uh, that the defense attorney would waive it on behalf of the defendant, uh, and there was case law on it, for just the reason that you mentioned, which is that uh, almost by definition, we can assume that these are folks who are mentally compromised, uh, and the defense attorney having the closest relationship of anybody in the courtroom um, to the defendant kind of should know, or it is assumed would know, uh, what's going on with the defendant and whether or not the defendant truly can waive his or her right Uh, to a jury trial in a knowing and voluntary manner. And so that used to happen, and case law used to allow that. However, now under Blackburn, the California Supreme Court has said that the waiver must be personal under a plain reading of the MDO statute unless there is substantial evidence on the record that the MDO lacks capacity to make a knowing and voluntary waiver of his or her right to a jury trial. Uh, the MDO has to be personally advised by the court and must personally waive unless there is that finding. So did the California Supreme Court explain why they adopted this particular rule? Yes, they did. Uh, They acknowledged that you can expect a mentally disordered offender to be mentally compromised. That is true. That is is a fact. Uh, But they also said that the legislature knew that when they drafted the MDO statute, and knowing that, they still, uh, in 2972 subsection A, required the court to advise the MDO of a right to a jury trial and required uh, a personal waiver of the jury trial by the MDO. Um, They still, the legislature, set that default rule. And the California Supreme Court explained that that's because um, if you have a severe mental disorder, that doesn't automatically mean, and you cannot assume just on the defense attorney's say-so, that this MDO is then unable to make decisions about the conduct of the proceedings, unable to make decisions about... Um, how best to defend himself or herself in a commitment proceeding, that the MDO is 
then automatically incompetent. You cannot assume those things. You have to specifically find that on the record. And so the Supreme Court left it to the trial court to determine that on the record. So in determining whether or not an MDO can waive their jury trial right, uh, we have to first figure out whether or not they're capable of making a knowing and voluntary waiver. Does there have to be some sort of hearing on that question? No, and a again, the Blackburn Court is quite explicit on this. Um, the court, the California Supreme Court, specifically said that uh, no full-blown competency hearing is required, but there has to be substantial evidence on the record that the MDO um, lacked capacity to make a knowing and voluntary waiver of his or her right to a jury trial. Uh, there not, does not need to be a full-blown hearing, but there needs to be that substantial evidence on the record. Well, I know what substantial evidence means in the context of whether or not there's sufficient evidence to uphold a verdict, but right. what constitutes substantial evidence in this context? The California Supreme Court specifically said that substantial evidence is evidence that, quote, raises a reasonable doubt about the respondent's capacity to make a knowing and voluntary waiver of the right to a jury trial. We've been talking about the statute so far, but is there any constitutional right to a jury trial in an MDO extension proceeding? Well, the Supreme Court in Blackburn did decline to address that directly, um, but they otherwise treated this as a statutory right. And so for now, I think we can assume that what we're dealing with here is a statutory right. So generally, when it comes to statutory rights, an error in failing to provide the right is going to be subject to a harmless error analysis requiring a showing of prejudice. Did the California Supreme Court apply this general standard of harmless error in reviewing this particular type of error? No, and perhaps oddly, no, since, as you say, what we're dealing with here is a statutory right. Um, but the California Supreme Court said that if what has occurred in the record is the trial court effectively denying a mentally disordered offender their statutory right to a jury trial, then that error amounts to, quote, a miscarriage of justice. And the Supreme Court says that does require automatic reversal. So they specifically rejected a harmless error analysis in that specific situation where the record shows that the MDO was denied his or her statutory right to a jury trial. Well, this is going to make a lot of AGs pretty unhappy. Yes. There's going to be a lot of trial courts out there who assume that defense counsel could waive the right to jury trial on behalf of these MDO defendants. Does this mean now that every case has to be reversed and retried where this error occurred? No, not necessarily. So uh, although the California Supreme Court rejected the harmless error analysis generally uh, when an MDO has been denied his or her statutory right to a jury trial, there is a little bit of a room for harmless error, error analysis when you go back and scan the record um, for prior cases. Because what the court said is, um, if there was not a personal waiver of jury trial by the MDO, that doesn't necessarily require an automatic uh, reversal if one of two things is true. One, if there's substantial evidence otherwise in the record that the defendant or respondent um, lacked capacity to make a knowing and voluntary waiver of their right to a jury trial. Um, for example, if somebody's mental impairment is quite plain from the record, if they have a psychotic break on the record, if they're saying delusional, nonsensical things in the record, it may be quite plain from the record that this is somebody who's in no shape to make a knowing and voluntary uh, waiver of their right to a jury trial. Also, um, even if uh, the MDO perhaps has not 
specifically said, I waive my right to a jury trial. If on the totality of the circumstances, the record indicates that they made a knowing involuntary waiver of their right to a jury trial, that also would not require automatic reversal. Now, in thinking about what kinds of situations um, would lend themselves to this kind of analysis that, you know, they didn't, the MDO did not make a personal waiver of their right to a jury trial, but on the totality of the circumstances, you would still find a knowing involuntary waiver. You know, just a thought experiment, I was thinking about situations where perhaps they used other words, not I waive my right to a jury trial, but I agree with my attorney, and otherwise showed coherence and comprehension. Um, that's not in the opinion, that's just I'm thinking through factual situations where you might find that on remand. But those are the situations, the two situations where automatic reversal would not be required. All right. I, the most troublesome aspect of this case seems to be that they've applied this automatic reversal standard for error in quasi-criminal civil cases. Yes. Generally, the standard for an error in a civil case is harmless error. But be that as it may, that's the standard we're stuck with. Now, there's another case that California Supreme Court issued. They issued it at the same time. It's a companion case to People versus Blackburn called People versus Tran. Uh, could you tell us a little bit in the time that we have left, what were the relevant facts in the case of People versus Tran? Sure. Well, Tran, as you said, was an NGI, not an MDO. It was, uh, Mr. Tran was found not guilty by reason of insanity on a, a 288 offense, meaning a lewd and lascivious act on a child under the age of 14. Um, he was committed to a hospital because he was not guilty by reason of insanity. His commitment was extended several times. These are two-year commitments, unlike the MDOs, which are one-year commitments. Uh, but his commitment was extended several times, both by bench trial and by jury trial. In 2009, he had a jury trial uh, on the extension of his commitment. In 2011, the district attorney again um, filed for extension of the commitment. Again, as in Blackburn, the defense indicated they wanted a trial but the defense attorney waived jury without taking a personal waiver of the jury trial from Mr. Tran on the record. Um, so it was an NGI with very similar circumstances. So the issue is basically similar to the issue that was raised in Blackburn, except it involves an NGI uh, extension proceeding. Different statute, very similar language as regards this particular issue. Okay, so what does the actual NGI statute say about a defendant's right to a jury trial when they have been committed as a uh, NGI? The NGI statute, which is 1026.5 subsection B of the penal code, says, again, um, as does the MDO statute, the court shall advise the respondent of the right to a jury trial. The trial shall be by jury unless waived by both the respondent and the district attorney. And did the California Supreme Court find that a defendant committed after an NGI finding must personally waive his right to a jury trial? Yes, and on substantially the same rationale as in Blackburn, the court recognized that somebody who's NGI, by definition, may have a mental disease defect or disorder, unless, of course, somehow they've been restored to sanity. Um, but you cannot automatically assume from that, just based on the defense attorney's say-so, that they're automatically incompetent, that they automatically do not understand what their legal interests are, that they automatically cannot make decisions about uh, their legal interests in the upcoming commitment proceeding. So the court still needs to find on the record substantial evidence that this person lacks capacity to make a knowing involuntary waiver of their jury trial right um, before they decide that they're not going to take a personal waiver of that right. All right. Bottom line here, when it comes to either MDO extension or NGI extension hearings, 
it's not going to be sufficient for the defense counsel to come in and say, hey, my clients filled out this paperwork and authorized me to enter a waiver of the right to jury trial on his behalf. That's not going to fly. You've got to bring the guy in. He's got to be advised. And then unless there's some sort of showing there that he's not capable of waiving the right, he himself, the MDO or NGI person, has to waive it. Absolutely. I could not have said it better myself. That's exactly correct. You, know, you probably could have said it a little bit better, but uh, <laughs> I just want to say thanks very much for coming on and helping launch the inaugural Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. Thank you very much. I'm honored. My pleasure.